great day, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Strategic Possibilities Show, where we discuss success and growth to help you launch potential in your personal and professional life. My name is Emmett Ferguson, and I am your host. And today, everybody, I've got an amazing, inspiring guest. His name is Craig Stanland, and I've been reading his posts on social media. This was how we got connected, and his posts were so inspiring because he's had an amazing story of you know, o- overcoming some huge challenges, and I want to let him share the story with you, um, and it re- relates to prison. Um, you know, so with that, Craig, and I admire you for you know, being open about this and realizing that this is an opportunity, your experiences are an opportunity to help people, whether they're going in or, or leaving the, that system. So can you share a little bit about, you know, what, I guess just that initial entry into prison before we move on to like all the great things that you've uh, come to realize after you left? Yeah, absolutely. And Emmett, thank you so much for having me on. This is, this is a real pleasure. I'll rewind a little bit to 2012. In 2012, I was an extremely successful sales executive in the technology industry. I dealt with all the largest financial firms in the world, all the biggest banks, all the biggest hedge funds. And you know, I had what many would say was it all. I owned multiple homes. I had beautiful cars. I had an amazing, beautiful wife. I wore gorgeous watches, ate at the best restaurants in Greenwich, Connecticut, and Manhattan. Everything looked great. But on the inside, I didn't feel worthy of any of that success. I didn't feel worthy of my things. I didn't feel worthy of my wife. I never felt like I was enough. I always worried that people were going to find out that I was an imposter. And it just was an empty, hollow feeling. And I was able to to get through that hollow feeling by purchasing and buying all those things and my ability to buy those things. And my identity had become so inextricably interwoven with my ability to buy those things and the things themselves that it, it just drove me down this path that ended up leading me to committing fraud against one of the largest technology companies in the world. I exploited their warranty policy for my financial gain. And I committed this fraud for just under 10 months or so. And I knew what I was doing was wrong. I knew it. The second that I clicked the enter button on my laptop, I knew it was wrong. My heart told me not to do it. And I moved forward with it anyway. And I continued to move forward with it until the FBI arrested me on October 1st, 2013. And that really was the day that my entire life changed. I pled guilty to one count of mail fraud because I was Mm -hmm. guilty. I was sentenced to two years of federal prison and three years of supervised release. And supervised release is probation in the federal system. And it just was such a monumental shift and change in my entire life. One that was, it's it's hard to describe when I had so much and now I've lost absolutely everything. And I didn't listen to that voice. I hurt my wife because I I lied to her and I told her what I was doing was okay when I knew that it wasn't. I hurt my family. I hurt myself. I lost my freedom. And it just was such, such a road to pure and utter shame. 
And to go back to what you said at the beginning, having come through all of that, I almost feel that I have an obligation because I hit rock bottom and experienced all of that. I feel that I have an obligation to help those that are going through similar situations now, whether it be prison or not, but shame is just so universal. And, you know, knowing what I've gone through and the tools that I have, it just feels natural and right for me to help those who, who need the help. Right on. And thank you so much for being so open about all of that. And, um, you know, on the other side, I think it's so interesting that you're talking about having it all and, you know, being that sales executive and, you know, having so many things that I I imagine, I don't know exactly what your lifestyle was like, but I imagine that it was, you know, fairly luxurious. You did some amazing things and, um, you know, all of that. And to realize that even at that level, that there are people out there who, you know, still don't feel complete in that area, which it sounded like that was the, the case for you. And, you know, just out of curiosity, when, when you, you know, talk about the, the situation about hitting that enter button. So just out of curious, just out of curiosity, like between that 10 months, like from that moment, what was that like? That was, it, it, it was chaos. It was just utter chaos because they, I had so many balls in the air at any one given time that my life was frenetic and just filled with stress of keeping this thing going. And it was, I, I'll give you an example. I just watched Uncut Gems. It's a phenomenal movie, but the main character, Adam Sandler, is just trying to keep everything in place. And it was just so frenetic. And it actually hurt me watching it because it brought me back to, and I was doing much different things than him, but the energy behind it and just that uncertainty behind everything. I felt that when I was watching the movie and it was very similar to at the end of Goodfellas when he is just running around and making sure that his his brother is stirring the sauce and they're looking for the helicopters and he's just so frantic. That that hits me so viscerally because I can relate to it. And that's, that's what I felt like during those 10 months because that voice, it didn't stop just the first time that I hit the enter button. You know, I had to to keep this fraud going was a series of choices that probably numbers into the thousands that I had to hit that enter button, to click the mouse button, to keep going, probably made thousands of choices. And every single one, that voice spoke to me and I ignored it. And it just, it it took a severe toll on me. Man, okay. So (laughs) that just makes me think of like, Tell Tell Heart, you know, that's the first thing that comes to mind. And, uh, you know, the Edgar Allan Poe poem and everything. And curiosity. So when you reach a position of being a sales executive also at that level, and you're still working at the company, I imagine for 10 months, you know, just out of curiosity, like if, if someone was looking at that from a, from an employee perspective, how do you, how do you feel like they would have been feeling like, did you, was there like signals that there was something wrong or like, you know, anything like that for, for anybody who was working for you, you were, you were managing people, right? Or... I was not managing. I was oh, a okay. senior sales executive. So I had approximately 20 accounts that I managed. And I had, um, I had, I had an inside person. I had an inside account manager. Um, I never actually thought that I managed them, even though I technically did. You know, it's I, just, that's the, my yeah. mentality. And 
but other than that, I, I didn't have anybody. There was no, I can't speak for my management, but I don't think that there were any red flags that they could have picked up on because the way that I had done it was so separate from the company. I, I had created something completely outside of the company to okay. do all this. And I didn't use company resources. You know, I didn't use my company laptop. I had a different laptop for everything. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it was, I, I feel that it was extremely separate. And, you know, from what I was able to understand through the FBI, don't remember seeing my employee get brought up in any of the paperwork in, in that regard. You know, okay. Clearly okay. stated that I worked there, but it didn't say anything about, um, you know, my company throwing up any notifications. Yeah. And, you know, that question was just brought up just because like, you know, you think about when you're working for a, a boss and, you know, some things start to start to change and you're wondering, you know, what's going on to, you know, sometimes realize that maybe there is, you know, something, something going on. But anyway, that's, a, that's, I guess that's a different topic. And, and looking into it. So as you're, you know, going through those 10 months and everything, like, was there, was there any, uh, I forget his name, but um, Catch Me If You Can. Was there anything like that? Have you ever seen that movie? I forget his name. Frank Abagnale. Right. Was there anything like that, like trying to escape or was it literally just like, okay, well, I, I'm, I've done this. I've got, I'm just going to stick through it until something happens or like. I had, I had a, a massive red flag that was thrown up where my, my crime involved having equipment delivered to various UPS stores in my neighborhood. And one of the, one of the guys at one of the UPS stores said, hey, a postal inspector came and was asking about you. And I got really, really nervous. I mean, it was my, my stomach fell, my heart tightened, and I was using aliases. You know, I was using fake names, fake company names to perpetuate the fraud. And I was so caught up in it. And I was so blind to what I was doing. You know, I knew it was wrong, but I just kept doing it anyway. And I was so hooked in it becomes so big that even when that happened, I said, okay, I'll just change the name to my name. The, you know, problem solved. I, I, I really, it sounds so foolish and embarrassing for me to say now that I really thought that way, but I did. I said, oh, okay, problem solved. But it still stayed in the back of my mind that, that they, you know, had, had looked into me. Yeah, I, Oof, I, I've gotten in trouble for like small things with my parents. And when they find out things, my, my heart sinks. So I can't even imagine with like, you know, something huge like that, you know, um, and, and how that affects like whatever happens throughout your day, whatever you're going through at work or anything else. So, um, and when I say like parents, I just mean like, you know, whether, whether you're in school or whether you're at work or anything, just like minor things that, you know, aren't really that huge that like, you know, significant that are going to get you investigated by the FBI and sent to prison. So, you know, to, to be able to hear that from you, it's um, pretty insightful. And also, okay, so, so you went to prison and uh, you did two years after, after investigation and everything. And can you share a little bit about uh, after, after you left? Because there's a, I think there's a whole amazing thing that you did as you came out and, you know, as you were able to start helping others who were also in prison. Can you share a little bit about that like journey after you left? 
Sure. So if I'll actually reframe that just a little bit, it the journey technically started in prison, and it was it was, and I will, I'll go through it fairly quickly. But mm-hmm. the shame mm-hmm. had become so so all consuming that I had started to plan how I was going to kill myself, and my TED talk uh, goes into that in, in great detail. I was planning on how to kill myself. And this, this amazing thing happened. My best friend emailed me to come visit me in prison. And I just said, oh my God, my best friend is coming. I can share with him these thoughts I'm having because you can't, when, when you're in prison, you can't mention suicide. You get locked in solitary confinement. Wow. So I couldn't mention wow. it on the phone. I couldn't mention it through email. Both of those are monitored. I didn't dare tell one of my friends who were some amazing, wonderful people that I met inside prison but out of concern for me, they might tell a guard. So I couldn't tell them. So I had, to, I had to keep this in for about four months. And the more that I bottled it up, the worse that it got. And so now I have this outlet. My best friend of 30 years is going to come. I can share with him. Visits aren't monitored. So I could tell him. I could say, Sean, things are not good. And he, he comes into the visiting room. He buys some food. We sit in our chairs. And I'm ready to tell him that, that I'm, I'm really in a bad, bad spot. Before I can say a word, Sean starts to speak. His life is a complete mess. He is getting a divorce. He's got money issues. He's got uh, work issues. And there was, a, there was a sadness in my friend's voice and in his eyes that I've never seen in the 30 plus years that we've been friends. And at that moment, I realized that I had worth and that I had value just because he drove, he drove two hours to come see me in federal prison. He could have spoken to anybody that day, but he chose me. And, you know, at the time, he didn't understand the ripple effect that that had. And that really is where my life turned once again. The day of my arrest was obviously the day that my life changed. The day of Sean's visit was the second day that my life changed. And that's when I started the the journey out. And the journey out, uh, if you don't mind, I'll go through the first few steps that I took. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be amazing. Because it's, it's, I think it's so important and it doesn't, kind of like I said earlier, it doesn't, always, it doesn't only apply to those that are incarcerated or going in or coming out. I think it's anybody who's really hit that rock bottom. There were three definitive steps that I took, and I call them the, the three A's. They are accepting reality, accepting responsibility, and accepting choice. And accepting reality was the first huge step that I took so after Sean's visit, I decided that I have to give meaning to the suffering, to the suffering that I caused my wife, to my family, and to myself. And I'm sitting in prison, and I just couldn't figure out how to do it. And I'm, I'm wishing that I'm not in prison. I'm wishing that I made different choices. I'm wishing that I listened to my heart. I'm wishing that I'm home with my wife and my dog and my cat. And bear in mind, my wife had already told me that she was leaving me. So that's even more of an impossibility that I could be with her. I'm wishing all of these things. And I realized that I'm fighting reality. I'm fighting what is right in front of me. And I grabbed my journal and my pen and my, you know, my pen. And I wrote, I accept that I'm a federally convicted felon. I accept that I'm getting divorced. I accept that I'm financially ruined. I went through a fairly big paragraph of things that I had to accept. And as I was doing it, it hurt like hell. It did not feel good 
to admit all of these things, but they were all truths. The moment I was done, however, it was as though a weight lifted off my shoulders and inside prison, I experienced a bit of freedom because what I had done when we accept reality, when we truly accept reality, we may not love where we, where we are, but we give ourselves a baseline in which to start over. We have a starting line. And I think that is the most important thing that we can do when we're at that rock bottom. And uh, here's a quick question. And uh, just out of curiosity, uh, can you share a little bit just so we can get an idea like of a timeline of uh, when that happened? Like, was it a year and a half into prison when this changed or? Good question. So it was, I'm trying to, let's think here. I was in 10 months. I was probably about 10 months into my sentence. I was probably 10 to 12 Mm -hmm. months into my sentence when, when I had this epiphany, Mm -hmm. which, which liberated me and really, it got the ball rolling. Then it was the accepting responsibility. So here I am, I'm sitting still in, you know, I'm still in prison, talking to my fellow inmates. And we oftentimes talked about the same thing, how the government forces guilty pleas, that 97% of all cases plead guilty, you know, and that the government just strong arms people into those and playing very much the victim role. And we're sitting around and we're chatting and I'm listening to my fellow inmates And I'm hearing them say these things, but inside I'm saying to myself, I know that you burnt down your building for the insurance money. I know that you wrote 4,000 plus bogus prescriptions for Oxycontin. You know, I I was like, I know all these things. And what I did, I grabbed my journal and my pen again. I started writing about it. I turned the mirror around and I looked at myself and I realized I was doing the same thing. I was playing the victim. And the fact of the matter is, I was guilty. I made a choice. I knew what I was doing was wrong. And again, I wrote, I accept responsibility for my actions and I accept that I hurt those that I love. And, and, and it was amazing because once again, a little bit of freedom inside of prison. And then it it turned into accepting responsibility was not only for my actions, but then this leads into the accepting choice. It was accepting responsibility for the remainder of my life and what I was going to do with it. I remember very clearly writing, this is my life now, what am I going to do with the rest of it? And that led me into accepting choice and understanding that every single thing that we do in life is a choice. Every single thing that we do, there are consequences to every single choice. And that as I was sitting and looking at it and analyzing my choices and analyzing the choices that were going to be in front of me, the way I used, the way I looked at it was an analogy of me burning my life to the ground and I could choose to stay in the burnt ashes of what was, or I could choose to step out of it and try to make something of it. And I chose the latter and it's a very long and arduous journey, but one that's so well worth going through. Right on. And so this was the, so you went from accepting reality and then accepting responsibility. Was this, and out of curiosity, in terms of creating something like that, and you said in terms of creating a, a system like that, the three A's, is that like, did it come over time? You were just like, okay, so I got to check my reality. And then, you know, you realized you had to check your responsibility and then, you know, you had to accept your, your choice or was it like over time? You're like, oh, well, this is something that I have to do next. Or can you share a little bit about that process? It, 
it was I'm able to I'm able to delineate it so clearly now looking back at it. At the time, it was not nearly that organized. I'd started journaling to put together my thoughts. And as I was journaling, I realized that I, I was journaling on a lot of the same stuff. You know, in the beginning, it was wishing that I was home and wishing for things. And, and my intuition took over and led me to that accepting reality. And a lot of it was, it was a very long, not clear process to go through those three steps. But the biggest tool for me to get there really was journaling followed by a meditation practice, which gave me that space to step back from it a little bit and to be able to look at myself through a different lens. Uh, it, it, it was when I was writing my book, when I realized how clear the steps were, but at the time it was very muddy water. Okay. And, you know, throughout that time, was there just, it didn't sound like it, but was there any moment when you were saying, you know, this is because somebody else or because, you know, of, of this that happened and that's what happened? Did you, was there ever, ever a moment where you were, you know, putting a lot of blame on other things or is it specifically like within that first 10 months you had already accepted responsibility and realized that, you know, you had messed up? It was, there was a tremendous amount of blame. There was an absolute tremendous amount of blame in the beginning. There was, the system is unfair. There was, you know, uh, I'm trying to, it was, yeah, the system was unfair. The FBI made mistakes. There was, I'll give you, I'll give you an example of something that was such a, was such a freeing moment for me. At my sentencing, the prosecutor misstated my net worth uh, by over $400,000. So not a small amount. Yeah. My attorney didn't address it at the time. And I remember after I was sentenced and those first few months of prison, I was just sitting there going, how, how dare he have the audacity to lie in court? How dare he do all these things? And when I accepted that responsibility, when I really was able to, to step back from that, I realized something really important. Had I not made that first choice, had I not knocked that first domino down, that prosecutor would have never even known my name. So he wouldn't even have had a chance to say what he said in court. And then when I took a step back from it, I realized that that number that he had he didn't do this maliciously, not even by a little bit. It was from a previous report that everybody acknowledged was wrong and that should have been thrown out. So I, I, he just made a careless mistake. And to be able to be free of that, that was just so monumental for me. And that's just, you know, one of the, it was just a series of events and processes to be able to get through all of those. And it's only now that I can see them so crystal clear and it's things that i work with you know people that are coming out of prison now or going into prison now i work with them on these things thank you and um okay so you uh, so the three the three a's and you were talking about responsibility so at what point uh, can you go into a little bit about what you mean by accepting choice accepting choice the choice that you made me. is that like oh go ahead it, it, it's it is it's really the understanding that everything in life is a choice. You know, even, you know, we say things, something, a very small, simple example, I have to do the laundry. No, I get to choose to do laundry. It's a big difference. It's a semantic difference, but it's, we choose who we are in every moment. We get to choose that. We get to choose how we show up. 
for our relationships, for our family, for work. Every single thing that we do is a choice and it was accepting that everything is a choice, which to me, which I didn't at the time, not in prison, I wasn't able to put this together, but I, it's, I still to this day practice those three A's. I still make sure that I keep in touch with those because they're that important to me. And now accepting choice, it's the agency over my life that I have control over the direction of my life because of the choices I make. Choices to me are freedom. And that's, that's really what accepting choice means to me. Okay. And okay. So looking at the time from when you started developing this after you, your friend had um, come to see you and, you know, after between that time you were developing this or you were journaling. And then when you finally got out, when, you know, the reality of being prison, being, um, you know, having been in prison hit, can you share a little bit about like, you know, how you overcame that and what that challenge was like? It's a really good question because it is, it, it's a little frightening. It, it's, it, it was frightening to come out and I wasn't my, so I had a 24 month sentence and I'll break that down for everyone. There is such a thing as good time. So I had a little bit over 10% taken off. So it was down to about 21 months, 15 months were inside prison. Six months were in the Brooklyn halfway house four months of that six months, I was actually living in the house. And then two months, I would report to the house once a week, but I was able to live in my own apartment with an ankle bracelet on. So that that 15 month mark, when I was leaving prison to go to the halfway house, that was really nerve wracking because I had no job, no money, no wife. I had no place to live outside of the halfway house. And eventually you need to find an apartment so you can leave the halfway house. I had none of those things. And I didn't want to, you know, admit it, but prison is a roof over your head and three squares a day. And now I'm going out into this wild unknown. And I, I was having this conversation with my mentor when I was leaving. And I told him my worries and my concerns. He put his arm around me and said, Craig, you have a blank canvas. You can paint whatever picture you want. And that is actually the title of my book is the blank canvas. Wow. Okay. And, and that was, that was, that was such an a, a empowering tool and it gave me a different perspective, but to your point, coming out was scary and it, it threw me for a little bit of a loop and I had to really stick with my, with those three A's. And then there was another foundational practice that I had put in place on top of that, which was the journaling the meditation and a gratitude practice. So I, I knew that I had to keep those going when I was in the halfway house and transitioning back into the real world and trying to, trying to keep those going and making progress towards things that were meaningful to me during that time of coming back to the real world. And for me, that was writing my book. You know, that gave me a sense of purpose that was this whole story that we're chatting about right now, putting that into words, knowing that it has an, an opportunity to help somebody. And that, that really, to have that driving force and that purpose, that kept me focused when I got out of prison to, to keep that ball rolling. Wonderful. And is the, is the book uh, out yet? So interestingly enough, I am launching a 
Kickstarter campaign on August 11th that is going to help me fund self-publishing. So it will pay for the final edit, the proofreading, the cover design, the interior design, marketing, uh, distribution to all the channels. So I will be, I'll be launching that, like I said, on August 11th, and I'm really psyched. I'm targeting a release date of, um, at the beginning of December, end of November, beginning of December. For wow. that to be released. All right. So August 11th coming up, that's for the Kickstarter, right? And then the rest of the releases later. That is correct. Yeah. Okay. So it's going to be the Kickstarter to fund. I'll be working with a company that's going to handle all of those things for me and just make it, you know, it's professionally self-publishing it. They take about yeah. two to three months. So, you know, it's going to be, you know, a 21 day campaign, two to three months for them to do their work. I'm hoping right around that time. Mm -hmm. All right. And, uh, so interested in hearing more about that. So definitely look forward to staying connected. And also, okay, so after you shared about how you were, you know, within those last 15, uh, 15 months, I think you said that you finally got to the halfway house and everything. So um, in terms of that, when after reality hit and everything, when you finally, when you started to, I guess, do more and you started to, I guess, uh, you know, I don't know whether you're looking for a job or trying to build new friendships or re rebuild like older friendships or whatever. Um, you know, at, what I noticed about you in terms of how you were sharing your story, which, which is why, you know, I, I think your book is going to be amazing is, you know, how vulnerable you allow yourself to be when you're writing and what helped you because some people would journal, right? And they would just keep it to themselves. And, you know, that might just be their thing. And then others allow it to, you know, help others. So what would you say is that thing that might have helped you be more comfortable helping somebody else and being open about this type of thing? Yeah, really, really good, insightful question. And that came down to circling back to right when after Sean's visit of wanting to give meaning to the suffering. And that was so important to me. And there was a huge part of that was this knowing that I had to give meaning to the suffering and that meant sharing my story. And I was so consumed by shame because I ignored that voice because of so many reasons consumed with shame that it was so hard for me to share my story. It was hard to have that vulnerability. And I, I knew deep inside that if I did not own my story. I did not own my life. And I realized that I had to start putting my story out there so that I could take ownership of it and hopefully help someone who is maybe feeling how I once felt right now. You know, I want to, that person who feels right now how I once felt, I want my stuff to reach that guy, that girl. You know, I, it's very important to me for that. And that's why I'm so vulnerable. But it was, in the beginning, it was not easy at all by any stretch to, to put myself out there. And I'll, I'll share with you a technique that I use, something that was really important to me and how I was able to get to that level of vulnerability. And it was actually trust. It was self-trust. Because I had not listened to that voice for so long, I couldn't trust myself. I had no trust. You know that, that, that voice that we all have, it disappeared for a while. It literally disappeared and I felt so empty 
and so hollow without it. And I knew that I had to rebuild trust in myself. And the author, Kamal Ravikant, he put up on Twitter, he put this tweet that said, the surest path to self-confidence I know is making and keeping commitments. And that just resonated with me. And I looked at that and I said, that's what I need to do. And I, I said to myself, what commitments did I make in prison that now that I am out of prison, I haven't done? And there was number one on the list was to conquer my fear of public speaking. I had kept putting it off and kept putting it off. And after reading that simple tweet, I committed to going to my first Toastmasters meeting and I wow. committed to volunteering at that meeting to speak. I went, I was a nervous wreck. It was sweating and stomach and you know all of it, all the, all the nerves of public speaking. And they asked for volunteers during what's called the table topics portion of a Toastmasters meeting, which is where they ask you a question and you have two minutes to answer it. I, I volunteered for that. I get up behind the podium. I, they asked me a question. I speak for a whopping, I'll never forget this, I speak for a whopping 26 seconds. I get, a round of, I get a round of applause and I sit back down in my seat. And this will sound so ridiculous and so silly, but I had faced my biggest fear and I did not die. And right then and there, I felt a little bit more trust in myself. And the more commitments that I made and kept, the more that I built that trust in myself to the point where it got to also anybody who's not familiar with the group, the first speech that anybody gives in a Toastmasters club is called the icebreaker. And it is exactly as it sounds. It's your personal story. And it could be whatever part of your personal story that you want to share. But I decided on my icebreaker that I was going in and saying that I'm a federally convicted felon who's been suicidal. I just put it all out on the line and people in the room, their jaws were on the floor. I almost cried during it. And again, I sat down and faced that fear and I didn't die. That is what gave me the strength to have the vulnerability that I have now to be able to share this openly. Wow. And thank you so much for um, doing that. And also, um, okay. So you, so you, did all of that. And I, I really appreciate that you share the concept of trusting yourself and that you brought up the idea that, you know, right now or at that moment when you were going through Toastmasters that you trust yourself, but, you know, at the same time, you realize that you weren't trusting yourself, your gut instinct, I guess, to say no back, you know, when it initially happened. And so here's an interesting thing is like, you know, a lot of us, or I think most of society will think of, you know, anybody who gets out of prison that, you know, somehow like maybe they're intrinsically bad or, you know, employees or employers will be very war, like war, wary, wary, I think that's the word of hiring them and things like that. But at the same time, there's so much that people go through in prison that I've heard so many stories of, you know, people making changes and everything. So just to get an idea, I mean, before you went in, is there, is there like a huge shift in, you know, your personality in terms of like who you are um, from the moment you went in and, you know, till today, like I'm kind of imagining like maybe, oh, maybe, you know, to, to be able to do that, you had to be some kind of maybe a jerk, you know, forgive my language, but, you know, to do that type of thing, maybe you had to be like that. And what if he's like that today, you know? So what sort of 
what do you what do you have to share in that area i guess i don't have a specific question but do, do you kind of get where i'm going or I, I do and prior to committing the crime i'd like to think that i've always been a nice guy i you know okay, I, I, yeah i, I was definitely I, could, one. I was just no no i know yeah. yeah no i know and i but i you know i think i've always been a nice guy but i will absolutely say there was a level of arrogance and there was a level of um you know, my wife during one of our arguments after the arrest she screamed at me. She's like, you think you're smarter than everyone else. And she was absolutely right. She was absolutely right. There was a hubris and an arrogance that I had that, you know, was, was fueling that crime. That, I would say, has completely, it's completely disappeared. When, when I hit rock bottom and I was planning on how to kill myself, that takes all arrogance and hubris out of, out of, anybody's sales you know i mean there was right. no more <laughs> there was no more of that whatsoever it's one of the being arrested by the fbi and everything that that actually entails and the dehumanization that the process is that is so humbling that it completely takes for me took all of that away so i'd say i'm still at my core the same person but much more introspective much more insightful. I have a different pers- I have a different perspective on things, and I, I have a much greater sense of empathy. You know, perspective and empathy and compassion are some of the, the biggest gifts that I've received from this experience. Wow, that is great, and I'm so glad that you're able to you know share this story throughout this entire podcast thanks for asking answering uh, you know going through all that those questions because it's so interesting to see this transformation and to hear about it and you know i just one on one hand one side of my mind you know i'm picturing you know the executive and that sales executive you know living fast and you know having everything and then suddenly you know losing everything and then now this is just a completely tra- complete transformation and it's inspiring not not the going to prison part but like you know that overall transformation of just being able to come out of it and you know do good and to come out of it and be able to you know transform yourself and be able to help others um uh but yeah thanks so much okay so you've got your book coming out on august 11th and you also work at uh you mentioned that helping people uh, go in and you know leave the prison system so we, I'm, I'm actually a member of the group. It's, a, it's the Progressive Prison Ministries. Uh, it was started by a guy who mentored me before I went into prison. His name is Jeff Grant. He's an amazing human being. And it's just a really great organization. So I, just, I, I am just a member and I help people that way. What I do professionally is I am, I've called myself a reinvention architect. So I'm a coach. I help people who want to start over. It's not, always the, it's not always the formerly incarcerated. It is somebody who is sitting in a cube, who is tired of sitting in a cube and has a dream of doing something more and doesn't know how to start over. You know, I wanna help those people. I don't think that everybody's going to make the same choices that I made, but there are other ramifications to not following one's dreams. And that's what I wanna help people with, is to be able to reinvent themselves and to start over. So I do, I do that. Yeah, I do yeah. speaking. I've got the other uh, book, you know, the Ted talk is out there and I'd love to, wow. I'd love to just say one line that I think is really important 
uh, it, it really is. And I think it speaks a little bit to what you were saying on that last question about maybe people's opinions. And this applies to, I think, everybody. Not, not I think, this applies to everybody. Your past cannot define you without your consent. And I think that's just something that is so easy to overlook. And we allow our past to define us, but that's the thing, we allow it. We cannot without our consent. And I think that's just something important for people to remember. That is definitely deeply powerful. And, um, you know, it's great to hear that you're also able to help so many others too, who, you know, live the dream. Because I think a lot of us, you know, lock ourselves in, you know, the prison of life in a way, uh, metaphorically speaking, in terms of making it, using things from our past to lock ourselves up and preventing us from, you know, achieving our fullest potential. So to, you know, have your story and to be able to, hear from you has been amazingly powerful and with that quote i mean that was such a powerful quote to wrap this all up and you know i want to thank you for your time craig and thank you so much for you know this this wonderful interview and um if there's anything else i think that is i think that is a perfect place to stop emmett this has been a, a real pleasure great speaking with you Again, I'm so psyched that you found me and that you reached out and took that initiative. And I, I, I'm really just thrilled at all of this. So thank you. All right, fantastic. And everybody listening, have a wonderful day and a wonderful evening and a wonderful year and a wonderful life.